Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible. To Creative me. visualization that really set me free. I love actioning. Very specific action group. Welcome back. Welcome back to season two. My name is Anne Penner, and I'm an associate professor of theater. I'm Katie McRae. I'm an associate professor of theater. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to the final fifth episode of season two of The Actor's Mind. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Kateri McRae. I'm an associate professor of psychology here at the University of Denver. And my name is Anne Penner. I am an associate professor of theater, also at DU. So... I have actually been pushing Anne to do an episode on humor ever since season one. I mean, in all honesty, we ha- we had an overflow list from season one that was quite sizable. Yeah. But going into season two, I was adamant that we do one on humor. And as we kept r- arranging and rearranging the sort of uh, content for season two, uh, I kept pushing humor. And Anne, I have to say, was maybe a tiny bit reluctant. I was a little reluctant. So I wanted to talk about humor for a couple reasons. One is that there are a few prominent psychological theories of humor that are pretty easily understandable. They break things down into just a couple of components. There are definitely some qualifications and nuances to them, but like in their elevator-sized pitch, they're pretty easily understandable and interesting. And Humor is one of the few areas of psychology research, I think, that has its own little sort of sub-area of scholarship that is directly related to performing or entertainment or acting. I mean, there's obviously uh, Dr. Talia Goldstein's work that we talked about in season one. There's some historical work on personality in actors. There's a little bit of work on like memorization and theater. Um, But there's actually like a a semi-legitimate sub Uh, research area of humor in psychology. And so I just thought it was so directly relevant. And usually I'm just pulling things and making them relevant. And so I thought it would be pretty easy to lay it on top of uh, the types of things that we talk about. Yeah, I love that. And I was, as Kateri said, I was resistant and reluctant because I don't especially self-identify as funny. As my dear friend Alison Watrous said to me, she goes, oh, no, 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 you're very funny. You're just horrible at building a joke, which is true. (laughs) And I think there's actually a lot of people like me where we don't fully grasp or have learned or been trained in the technique of humor. But I think humor is a a human thing that there's probably a few horribly boring, humorless people out there. But, you know, a lot of us have our own funny in that way. And so as as I surrendered to the idea of humor and, and heard Kateri's, uh, the scientific theories, and started researching and acting, asking friends and reading, I got, I, I kind of fell in love with humor. And I personified humor. I was picturing humor like a, that person at a party who you're curious about, but you don't really understand who they are or why they behave the way they do. And then you start talking to them and you realize they're fucking brilliant and honest and original and creative and communicative. And so now I'm madly in love with humor and the people who are really, really good at it because I think it it makes you laugh, which is enough. And it can cut through the bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I also admire it for breaking boundaries of social norms. Like it, yeah. it's a way to talk about things, to break the rules of how we usually talk about things. Yeah. And when it does it well, that is truth-telling. And I think an inevitable 
uh, thing that happens is that sometimes it goes too far. That's mm-hmm. the humor I don't like where I'm like, ah, oh, that's just offensive. It's not even funny. And then I think, well, that's the price you pay yeah. for experimenting with humor. Totally. I think it's both expansive and exact at the same time, yeah. which is when it's, when those are in perfect balance, it's extremely satisfying. Yeah. But to do it well, you sometimes have to err you know, too much in one direction or the other, which, which we can definitely talk about what some of those errors might look like. Yeah. So I think we want to start by giving many examples of what, of how humor operates. Especially in a theatrical context. Especially in a theatrical context. And then we're going to narrow it down. Sounds great. So one of the funniest people in Denver is a woman named Leslie O'Carroll. So I asked Leslie, uh, you know, what makes something funny, which is an impossible thing to answer via email. But she (laughs) did give me many examples of famous comedians and how they use humor. And the point, I'm going to give you four examples, and they all use humor in a different way. So if you, she says, if you look at someone like Jerry Seinfeld, he takes things that are universal and points out a different way to look at them and why they are funny. Someone like Woody Allen uses neurosis to accentuate normal things, turning them into absurdities. He defines comedy as tragedy plus time. We'll circle back to that idea. Lucy, I love Lucy, used situational comedy by putting a well-known character in different situations and seeing how they behave when things go wrong. And I have, I mean, I watched I Love Lucy reruns growing up, and you have many, many vivid pictures of her physical comedy. And Carol Burnett liked to take something well-known and put an unexpected twist on it, like Scarlett O'Hara making a dress out of curtains in the movie, but then she spoofed it by doing the same thing, but she used the curtain rod. So it's funny when you're expecting one thing, and it turns out to be something else. Totally. And there are, I mean, we could probably fill an entire podcast with um, spin-off theories of humor and the communicative uh, value that humor has, uh, you know, in terms of conveying a message. If you think of, of humor from like a marketing standpoint or a um, rhetorical standpoint, right? Like if politicians are using humor, which isn't exactly what we're talking about. And there's also some, um, you know, sort of um, properties of humor that might be most clear in stand-up. We might use some examples of stand-up today, but we're really thinking about how humor functions in a production in a play, whether it's a comedy or a musical, or even a tragedy that has humorous moments in it. All of those um, have humor that that serves um, sort of different functions in terms of storytelling. And I think another um, organizing principle that's helpful to think about is that it's, it's used both in a positive way and a negative way. Or I've heard the phrase, it can be used as a lubricant or an abrasive, right? So you can use it to relieve tension uh, or emotion or awkwardness or discomfort. You can um, use it to connect to someone, say, hey, we're in the, we're in the same boat, uh, to surprise someone, to entertain, um, to shed light on the truth of a moment. But you also can use it to differentiate, to say, I'm actually yes. smarter than you or I'm better than you, mm-hmm. and I'm going to use my words to explain why I am those. I'm superior to you. And most of us first think of the sort of joyful function of humor, but there is this derisive, derisive? So there is this superiority function of humor too, of putting someone in their place or being, uh, you know, superior to to them. So the, the predominant theory of humor that I would think most psychologists might have been exposed to at some point uh, used to be called the semantic theory of humor um, and basically has two main components. And the two main components are first incongruity 
and then resolution. And actually, the second component is arguable. Some people think that you can have humor without resolution. But incongruity is basically just a fancy word for something that is unexpected, right? A surprise. So a lot of examples of humor can really be boiled down to the degree to which you successfully set up an expectation and then do something else, right? And then have something be unexpected. So we'll talk a lot about timing, but one of the reasons timing is so, so, so important in humor is that timing contributes to surprise greatly, right? Knowing exactly when something is coming makes something less surprising. And so there is uh, a timing component to making sure that you are maximizing the amount of unexpectedness um, in your delivery of uh, a particular joke or line or uh, concept. Yeah. So duration of delivery is important. Does it ever work that it's you elongate it, that it's not oh, just yes. speed. Cause I would think comedy, right. You know, the, the joke is louder, faster, funnier, right. The comedy's louder and it's faster, but there's probably moments where you fuck with duration and you actually slow something down yes. to create humor. Yes. And again, it's all to maximize expectation, right? So you want to, sometimes you create expectation by having many things straight in a row. They follow a very particular pattern, right? And you break it in that way. But other times you can break a pattern with a really long pause or an extra long beat or taking freaking you know, 17 beats when you previously took one. So there's a lot of ways. There's no one faster is always funnier. I do think that you are able to um, fit more uh, jokes, if you want to boil them all down to jokes, you can fit more jokes into more real estate if you go faster. And I do think that... um, people can follow dialogue pretty quickly. And so you usually don't need to slow down a joke for people to get it. Every once in a while you'll do. Every once in a while the jokes are coming too fast. Yeah. Um, But so faster is probably usually, I I mean, even in, in non, even in non comedic shows, usually the actors won't, want to take things slower than the audience, right? That's usually always a note during like tech week is like faster, 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 yeah. faster. I saw, I saw a show recently that was actually pretty dramatic, uh-huh. but I felt like the production needed more humor mm. and that would have come with, uh, is speeding things yeah. up. There was more opportunity for humor than I saw. Yeah. I want to jump in with some brilliant Michael Bouchard comments. So Michael, Michael Bouchard. Bouchard. Yeah. Hi, Michael. Uh, We're going to use a couple of beautiful uh, comedy tips and tricks that I got from Ms. Leslie O'Carroll from a class that you have taught at the Denver Center, and it ties into incongruity. So one of them is find the assumption that is to be overturned. This is what Kateri just said. Look to the punchline to tell you what that is. Once you find that assumption, do whatever you can to cause the assumption to be stronger in the minds of the audience. For example, if your punchline is mean, you set up, your setup could be super nice. A correctly timed joke is one that gives the perfect amount of time for the audience to understand the premise and not enough time to beat you to the punchline. Yeah. He also says put a beat before your punchlines, which I think is cool. It's like you deliver the setup then there's just this little transition. So the audience maybe clues into, oh, the punchline's coming. Then you get the punchline. Cognitive psychologists for a long time have seen the way our brains use language in particular and have conceptualized it as a semantic net or a semantic web, right? So we have nodes that are different words or concepts. And then there are connections between those. And those connections are uh, very in their fidelity and their distance, right? So 
and and a lot of uh, cognitive theorists would say this is actually literal distance in the brain, but it doesn't really matter if it's physical distance between brain parts. It's connectivity distance in terms of the amount of time it takes those two parts of the brain to talk to one another. So, uh, for example, the word apple is very closely to the word uh, related to the word tree. For people who grew up with a particular cultural background, the word apple might also be very closely related to words like Adam and Eve and snake. <laughs> um, sure. You know, uh, but the word apple is not very closely related, for example, to the word park bench. Right. Uh, maybe through tree, right? Maybe there's the link. Um, but there's there are distal, there are distant relatives semantically, and then there are close relatives. And so... The, co- the, the semantic theory of humor would say that, when, especially when you're setting up language-based humor, um, that what you want to do is to have that optimal semantic distance where you are, can be unexpected. So you, the, the punchline or the, or the landing of the joke is reaching outside of the closest yeah. activated neighbors, right? Yeah. So if you're setting things up, and that's what Michael's advice about contrast is helping with or antithesis, yeah. right? Is that if you're setting things up to be all about an apple, you actually don't want a lot of setup earlier in the scene to be about trees and orchards and like all of this because apple is no longer surprising and unexpected yeah. because you've primed all of those meanings. So you want to set up a, a different and outside meaning and really, really smart joke writing TV sitcom writing writers are really good at this is they give you breadcrumbs down a trail mm. where you think, you know where it's going. And especially if you're like an expert sitcom watcher, you're like, Oh, I know where this joke is going. Uh-huh. And they usually give you a, it's usually a three part joke where there's like a setup and then there's a intermediate joke. That's a little bit funny. And yeah. sometimes even like the characters in the scene will laugh at that second one. It's like a little bit of a joke, but then there's a third one that totally whips it around and it's com- something completely unexpected. Yeah. I was reading up on humor in a book that our, that our guest Sabin Epstein wrote with John Harrop called Acting with Style. What I think of is someone like Oscar Wilde and the importance of being earnest, where there's all these epigrams, right? These very witty sayings Mm -hmm. that offset words uh, against each other, and the humor is in how the words are in relationship to each other, the antithesis of the words. So here's just one example, and my uh, unpracticed British accent. So Lady Bracknell (laughs) says to John Worthing, um, to lose one parent, Mr. Worthing, may be regarded as misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. And so she offsetting if played well and rehearsed well it's really fucking funny because she's using the idea of the two different ways to lose right to like to just lose a thing versus to lose or to have a parent die and sure. then um misfortune versus carelessness yes and there i think there are many many in some ways i think the 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 long-standing success of this theory of humor is that, again, it's an umbrella that covers a lot of examples of things that are funny so um the the principle of setting up an expectation and then Mm -hmm. going against it Mm -hmm. is why things that come in threes are funny. The rule of threes is funny. Um, So the rule of threes refers to a common structure for the setup of a joke where you repeat something three times and the first two are similar instantiations of the setup and then the third is a different one. Yeah. And I think in many, many uh, sitcoms, Contemporary sitcoms, ones happening right now, such as, uh, you know, Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, even The Office, and even dating back to Friends and Seinfeld. Even though that's super contemporary naturalistic language, they're using antithesis all the time. The relationship of the words that the characters are using, there's this constant incongruence going on, and that creates humor. Yes. And before I had a kid, I was 
I always loved hearing like kids versions of jokes. You know what I mean? Like kids telling knock knock jokes poorly, like is just so revealing of their misunderstanding. And I apologize to anyone who actually studies the development of humor. Cause I'm sure there are people who actually study this and I, I'll go to try to find some of those studies and put them on the website. Um, but I just am not aware of like at what age people, kids understand certain aspects of humor. Yeah. But um, my daughter, who is about to be four, came to me maybe a month and a half ago and said, mommy, do you want to hear a joke? And I said, sure. And she said, how did the banana get to the moon? I was like, how? And she was like, <laughs> She was like, from its head. And I was like, okay, sure. Like, that's a decent, four, you know, almost four-year-old joke. And then she was like, hey, mommy, how did the orange get to the moon? And I was like, I don't know. Now. And she was like, from its head. <laughs> I was like, okay. She's like, hey, mommy, how did the apple get to the moon? And I was like, I don't know how many more of these she's, she's going to do. Right, right. And I said, what? She said, from its bottom. <laughs> and I I just, I, there, I really don't think she understood why that was funny, but yeah, I was yeah, so yeah. incredibly surprised and delighted that she changed the answer and yeah. that it was the opposite part of the body. Yeah. You know, from the head. I thought that it's was unexpected. pretty brilliant. I'm just going to say now she's a comic genius. She is. <laughs> I have one more. My husband and my daughter, Molly, who's seven going on eight, were at Trader Joe's, and the Trader Joe's checkout guy told them a joke, which, though not hilarious, I think is an adequate example of incongruity. So the joke is, uh, why do giraffes have such tall necks? Why? Um, so that they don't have to smell their feet. Right, which is like, I'm not laughing right now. <laughs> like, it's not that funny. But I think what's effective about it is as soon as you drop neck, right, into the yes. question, I'm, I'm trying to solve the neck of the giraffe. And then the punchline actually has to do with the feet. Right. And so just that, that simple difference mm -hmm. is, if not hilarious, at least clever. Yes. And Anne told me this joke before we came to record. And of course, I don't know what the punchline is, right? But I'm thinking, okay, giraffe, neck, it's something about holding up its head. It's something about reaching leaves. And I just was very, my, my trying to predict what the punchline was, was in a very high space. Yeah. So I was not expecting the answer to come from the ground. Um, can we play our game? Okay, sure. <laughs> do you want to give me the words or do you want to? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to start with basic association. So these are going to be probably very closely related semantic neighbors in, in the parlance of, of semantic networks. Okay. So we're just going to do a free association game that Anne got from this book. Uh, the book is brilliant. It's called Why Is That So Funny by John Wright, which my friend Allison recommended. Okay. So I'm going to give Anne random words and she's going to tell me the first word that comes to her head. All right. You ready? I'm so ready. Sunshine. Rain. Boots. Socks. Eyeballs. Glasses. Uh, India. Pakistan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's not supposed to be funny yet. This is not, this is not the funny part. <laughs> uh, coffee shop. Are we still doing? Yeah. Oh. Uh, latte. Mm -hmm. um, mountain. Snow. Okay. And yeah. now... You want to keep giving it yeah. to me? All okay. Right. So how does the book say to do? The book says now that when I respond, it's not something associative, but as random as possible, as sort of dissociative as possible. Which is actually quite cognitively challenging. Yeah. Um, okay. Ready? Spoon. Classroom. <laughs> Boulder. Chair. 
salty. Vomit. <laughs> but I don't, those are similar. I think vomit's just funny. Vomit is just funny. <laughs> Let's do a couple more. This is hard. This one's hard. It is, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard because, again, in your brain, the words are priming all the close by things. So it's actually yeah. really hard to come up with something that isn't being primed. It's really, yeah. yeah, like the, the, uh, one strategy, if you had to do this, one strategy it would be to think of an opposite and then think of a close associate of an opposite if you wanted to get distance. Oh, cool. But ugh, I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just hard. Yeah. Okay, you want me to give you a few more? Sure, why not? <laughs> okay, ready? Yeah. Quiche. Golden Doodle. <laughs> You can begin to tell a story with those two. I know, right? I see a couple at a cafe having brunch. Yeah. Um, caterpillar. House. <laughs> I think it drives the point home, yeah. right? So another offshoot of the semantic theory of humor is that infrequency is... Uh, likely to be inherently funny. So things that we don't encounter very often are more likely to be funny than things that we don't encounter very uh, often. Um, And this tracks a little bit if you uh, try to look up words or phrases that are inherently funny that don't need context or a setup to be funny, there are actually a few pretty basic rules that that circle around infrequency. So, uh, for example, most comedy writers will tell you that words with hard consonant sounds are funny, and especially words with a K sound, a K sound in them, are very funny uh, for the end of a punchline because those words are less common. Uh, words that have elongated vowel sounds sound, uh, at least in the English language, sound inherently silly. So, like, golden doodle. 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 Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite jokes from the Big Bang Theory sitcom Uh ends with the character saying the words appetizer. Yeah. And that is so funny to me. It's also a pun, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, But uh, so there are some there are some auditory properties of words that make them more funny. And uh, Ray Romano, uh, who's a genius with comedy, uh, when he was building, I think the show is called Paddleton with Mark Duplass. Um, Mark was saying on a podcast with Dak Shepard, armchair expert, that Ray, when they were struggling to find the comedy in a scene or in a particular sentence, Ray knew how to. Ray Romano knew how to land it, and it often was ending a sentence on a hard consonant. And the k you mm-hmm. mentioned the least, uh, the the least common one somehow is funny, which amazes me that something that simple equals funny. It accentuates the surprise. Yeah. Another sort of, um, kind of lower level rule about things that will be funny is if they, uh, if their auditory properties remind us of taboo words, right? Taboo words are regulated and we don't hear them that often. And when we do hear them, they're surprising and shocking even. And so uh, The Good Place uh, had a device uh, to that where all the characters can't say actual swear words when they're in The Good Place, which is amazing. And so to hear someone as you know, sweet looking as Kristen Bell say, holy forking shirt balls um, is always delightful. Uh, and so... Uh, yeah, there's no there's no actual semantic meaning to forking shirt balls. Um, <laughs> and it makes me laugh. 
<laughs> and Kristen Bell is apparently one of the nicest human beings in the world. Yes. And she, and I think her, um, I think she plays off of her sweet, the, the sweet associations you have with her, the way she looks, uh, to deliver some surprising humor. I think she, she trades on this in good place. She trades on this in, um, uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that, that that's part of her comedic currency. Yeah. In a great way, I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah, me too. Some people will tell you that all you need is surprise. All you need is incongruity for something to be funny. Um, and so you can think of a joke like, uh, why did the chicken cross the road? Why? Because it was Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently Anna's one of these people. I find these jokes a little bit tired. Um, but there is no resolution. There's nothing about crossing roads on Tuesdays that like ties things up in a bow. But some people will say that humor is accentuated at the least or some people might even say requires a resolution of the incongruity, another piece of information that makes a bridge that connects you why A and B seemed completely unrelated and surprising at first, but actually through bridge C, it makes complete sense. So puns are a really good example of resolution because puns rely on the double meaning of a word um, and a really good pun. I can get, tell you my favorite joke tell ever, me. which is a pun. Okay. So my favorite pun is the word pun is funny i think it is a little funny um i also like it when pe people call things punny <laughs> as a way of being funny, funny as a pun um, but my favorite joke in the whole world is <laughs> it's hard to tell puns to kleptomaniacs because they always take things literally <laughs> So I love that it references puns in it, uh, but it, it relies on the double meanings, both of take things and is it a double meaning of literally? Yes. No, no, it's not a double meaning of literally, but the word literally is what causes you to spin around yeah. the meaning of take things, right? Take things. So and it's, you paused. Didn't you I, say take things? Pause. I did. Literally. I did. I'm, I'm no comedic <laughs> champion, but I, I knew enough to pause. And also literally is a really popular word these days. Yes, it's used that's in true. multiple ways. And I wonder if that makes it funnier yes. somehow. Yeah. It, it is often a cap <sighs> word at the end of a sentence um, uh -huh. that, yeah. Literally. It's also Garablo's character on Parks and Rec would say literally all the time. <laughs> and I think there were multiple definitions for literally yeah. when he used them. So the resolution, the emphasis on resolution in humor actually makes most humor a form of analogy, a form of analogical reasoning where you're saying there's a parallelism and it's almost always relational, right? It's the way that A, it's very much like the analogies you see on the GRE, the way that A relates to B is parallel to the, re the way that C relates to D. And if you set up a really good joke, you say the way A relates to B is just like C relates to, and everyone is sitting there going, what is it like? What is C? What is it? I don't yeah. understand. I can't come up with it. This is Michael's tip of you have to get there before the audience gets there, right? So if people are still searching through their semantic banks of like what is it that 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 c relates to that's like a relates to b yeah. and then you can come up with something that, yeah. that is unexpected but also true right that squares all the corners and ties it back together and they say it is just yeah. like that and i think there's something pleasurable about the maybe the intellectual act of working in that way as an audience like you're working you're working you're working but it's also delightful it's yes. it's delicious work that your brain is doing yes 
And I think that the more intellectual comedy writers, Shakespeare, you know, Stoppard, really understand this and are really, um, both as playwrights and they write characters who enjoy the playfulness of playing around with words and concepts in, in this way. And it's almost like the characters are also enjoying the discovery of these analogies and yeah. these metaphors and these parallelisms. Yeah. Um, as they're revealing them to the audience. Yeah, and, and child's play and the idea of how children play came up, uh, both in the book, Why Is That So Funny? And just as we were talking, we both have done, right, our, our children have delightful jokes. And I think part of the reason is kids are just naturally good at dropping into metaphorical, analogical worlds. Mm-hmm. And they can, they're not as literal as grown-ups are. No. So they can both be like, my daughter can be Molly, and then my in the next moment, or basically at the same moment, she can be some other totally different animal, human yeah. object. And that's... That's pure, and that's, it can be, it can create humor. Yes. And yeah, actually my daughter this morning uh, was telling me today that um, she saw a car and that the skin of the car had polka dots. Oh, and I was skin, like, the skin yeah, of the of car. Course. Like I completely yeah. understood her and she didn't understand why that wasn't the right thing yeah. to say. And I, I, I thought that was delightful. I listen often to a, a, a very popular podcast called Pod Save America. And it's uh, a bunch of guys who are really smart about politics. And one is John Lovett, who is on there as much for his humor, if not more, as as his political savviness. I believe savviness. they hired him based on his LSAT score. Oh, really? His LSAT? <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> but he's both highly intelligent and extremely funny. And as I was thinking about humor the past couple of weeks, I just was listening to John Lovett and thinking, this guy is brilliant with analogies. And what's so great about him is they work like 80% of the time, <laughs> but he has the guts to kind of like start creating these analogies that sometimes he heads down them. And when he delivers, when they resolve, they're hilarious. When they don't, it it's... I still don't consider it wasted time because I find him funny. But the most recent one I can remember is they were talking about all the, you know, 25 Democratic candidates entering the presidential race and why Joe Biden immediately is beloved and why he has high ratings. Uh, John Lovett says... uh, It's like when you go to the Froyo store and you want your Froyo and rather than like thinking about do I want the Oreo or do I want the peach mango, you just go for the sweet tart because that's like reliable. And Joe Biden is the sweet tart. Is that the flavor that everyone gets at Froyo? The tart one. Original tart? Original tart. The tart one. Old-fashioned tart? Old-fashioned tart. And then he started to go I'm down. I'm going to say Joe Biden's an old-fashioned <laughs> tart. He's old-fashioned <laughs> tart. That's funny. And then he just went down this this analogy road where he, he didn't even align the other candidates with different flavors, but it was really funny and... He, in, and unexpected. And when you think he's going to talk about the presidential candidates' names, he's actually still talking about Froyo. It remains surprising and unexpected and therefore delightful. Yeah. And again, I think because a lot of humor on some level is analogical, it actually then becomes consequential whether or not people are using simile or metaphor. So I remember like learning an English class about the difference between simile and metaphor. And I was like, who cares? Like just one of them declares what it is and the other one doesn't. But in terms of this unexpectedness and this priming, when you, when you say out front, like love, it was like, it's like this, right? He's, he's declaring, I'm making an analogy now. And that Mm -hmm. is going to be a, that's going to land a little bit differently than humor that builds a little bit more roundabout as a metaphor, Mm -hmm. but you don't even realize that a metaphor is being built, right? Until you see the parallelisms. Sure. I love that. Yeah. 
Another sort of um, symptom that you might see in sitcoms, in stand-up, in other forms of humor um, is uh, recurring jokes, right? Like bringing back the same piece of information. And so uh, a lot of times people call these callbacks. I don't know if that's only a stand-up like slash improv term or if that's always the term for reincorporating a piece of information. And Leslie called it a running gag. Yeah. Which is kind of a vaudevillian term. Yeah. And a really good, you know, a really good finale to a stand up show or a sitcom will have a joke that's a one-two punch so it's like a setup and then a punchline and the punchline resolves the incongruity that was most proximally set up by the setup but it also tickles your memory cells to go all the way back to that joke that happened six minutes ago or 12 minutes ago Mm. or 20 minutes ago so a really good use of a callback will enhance a punchline that would have been a little bit funny you know without it reincorporating the same reference or the same information or the same you know physical gag or you know uh, funny face or whatever that that you're doing that's amazing to me I have one more joke that I find funny, and even when I think about it, I start to laugh. Uh, my husband is much funnier than I am. Mine Moss, too. And uh, he was telling a joke to our. Oh, friend. I'm sorry. My husband's funnier than me, not you. <laughs> I mean, That's he's, okay. he's probably, probably funnier, funnier than, than me. You. That's it's all good. I'm sorry. I, I do love you. So Ma- Moss told this joke where he was talking about how it's difficult to communicate with our dog's walker, our dog walker, and he said, "You know, she's so good with the dog. She communicates so well with the dog. I have." no idea how to talk to her. When I try and talk to her, I just don't know how to get through. But then I started barking and it all just worked out beautifully. (laughs) He told it better than me, but it feels like a beautiful resolution where you set up like dog, how a dog and dog walker communicate, how human doesn't know how, or maybe you can help me understand. And then it comes full circle where once the human starts barking, it all, it all works out. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's almost a little bit, uh, I mean, the expectation is that humans will be better at communicating with other humans than they are with dogs, right? So he's pointing out the humor in the fact that she gets along better with dogs than humans. Like, that's that's where the initial humor come from, is he's kind of poking at that idea that, like, she's an expert at communicating with canines, but not with humans. (laughs) Um, You know... But he didn't, he isn't actually meaning verbal communication. He's meaning like she reads their body language. Right, she knows right. what they want. She spends so much time around them. <laughs> and so he made it funny by, by sort of saying explicitly, yeah. um, uh, you know, that he started barking. Because you're not actually imagining that the reason she can't understand it is because she speaks bark and not English, right? right? right like that's right. not what he literally meant the first time. Right, right, right. And I think it's self-deprecating, too. It is a like little self-deprecating. He is, he's faulting himself for not knowing how it's to talk to this human. It's a little fun at her, too. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. So there's another really prominent theory of humor that is definitely related and overlapping to this semantic theory of humor in terms of incongruity and resolution. And this one um, I'm familiar with because uh, Dr. Pete McGraw up in Boulder has been one of the biggest uh, advocates for this theory. Dr. McGraw would say that the the key characteristic of humor is that humor is displaying a benign violation of something. There's a violation of a norm. There's a violation of your safety. There's a, some sort of threat uh, that gets depicted, but it is depicted in such a way that there is a safety signaled and you know that it's okay, 
right? So there is, so even just to take your last example of Moss's joke, right, where he he's talking about a disconnect that he can't communicate with this other person, which yeah. in some situations could be quite distressful, right? And if he's trying to communicate, like, no, you have to be here at 2 p.m. tomorrow, and she literally had no idea what he was saying, that would be quite problematic. Um, but then he is communicating, like, oh, it's all okay. Like, you even, as you retold it, you even said, it's okay, I started barking, yeah, right? Like, yeah. so that communicate, it's all good. Yes. It's, we moved forward, I found a solution to this problem. Yeah. So, uh, you know... Dr. McGraw points to all sorts of other examples of jokes um, and a lot of dark humor definitely fits this mold, right? Of joking about death or murder or, um, you know, other types of, or, or injury. Um, if you actually think about slapstick, physical comedy is yeah. a great example of benign violation where it's um, people who are who are displaying physical patterns that normally would lead to quite serious injury, but you yeah. know that they are not injured because yeah. of the stylized way that it is presented yeah. as well as the setting, as well as knowing this is in a theatrical yeah. setting, you know that this is practiced and rehearsed. Yeah. And this ties in, you just tied it to physical comedy and yeah. you think of uh, Commedia dell'arte and you think of Charlie Chaplin and you think of Jim Carrey and you, th the, the, the sort of simplest, uh, most universal joke I think of is like a very arrogant, dignified man walking down the street and slipping on the banana peel, mm -hmm. right? And I think the okay is that he gets up. Right. If he slipped and went completely limp and didn't get up, that would be a lot less funny to most right, people. Right. Um, yes, exactly. exactly. That's the okay signal. Um, I have an example, a current example of um, uh, where violence is made more okay. Uh, there is a uh, an artist I think I love named Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is a creator, main producer, I, I forget her title, in Killing Eve, which Sandra Oh is the star of it. Sandra Oh is extremely funny in it. Um, there is the other main character, who's also a wonderful actor, uh, is a psychopathic serial killer. And yet the show, so the show is definitely more drama than comedy, but because she's psychopathic, she, the way she handles death is lighthearted. And then Sandra Oh is beginning to investigate her. And Sandra Oh doesn't fully care or realize what danger she's in. Right. So she's constantly uh, adding, her character adds levity. And also because Sandra Oh is such a specific actor, they add a lot of humor to a show that I now can stomach watching, which if it had less humor, I don't know if, if sure. I could watch it. Yes. Um, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge also has a show called Fleabag that Kateri heard me talk ad nauseum about over the past couple <laughs> weeks. And she, it actually originated as a one-woman show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival several years ago. And she plays the main character. She writes all the episodes. And what I love about her humor is she's constantly, the tone is constantly shifting and surprising me. And that gets back into incongruity of this is ha-ha funny. I'm making a joke here. And then actually what I just did or said and what this character just did to me is extremely dark and offensive. Right. And that's actually the humor that I find. So she's violating social norms yeah. by talking about miscarriage, lying about miscarriage, falling in love with a Catholic priest, um, uh, doing other horrible things or socially messy things. And then she'll undercut it or, or uh, create levity or okay it by adding humor. And it's, con it's written so tightly that it's mm. this constant back and forth. And her okay signal is she... Uh, breaks the fourth wall and she looks at the camera. Yeah. So there's a complicity with the audience. Yes. She's saying, this is all okay because you're in it with me. I'm telling you how I'm feeling. Yeah. 
and that makes it more benign. Totally. And I think that some of the this the benign signaling is very explicit. There's sometimes like a you know, like you said like a cinemagraphic device like yeah. like breaking the fourth wall or looking at the camera. I think again um one uh one explicit signal safety is when a character or a comedian says it's okay. It all, it all ended up all right because you know, like you can explicitly say it's all right. And I have just one more example of how to benign a violation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which I talk about a lot. Uh, There's a moment when a character, Rosa Diaz, comments or remarks on a violation that Charles is making. So he comes in, I think there's a whole heist going on and he comes in dressed in uh, very explicitly in like a Hasidic Jewish man, like outfit. And when you, as audience, when you first see it, you go, Oh my God, like, is that okay that he's doing that? Yeah. And in the next moment, Rose is like, Whoa, that's kind of offensive. Yeah. And that then kind of okays it. And then he explains, well, the reason I'm in this is so no one pays attention and realizes it's me. And then it all in my opinion, at least, becomes that whole quick exchange benigns the violation of dressing up as someone who you are not at yeah. all. And it happens several times in How I Met Your Mother where the Neil Patrick Harris says Barney will say something and other characters will say, you did not do that. Or they'll be like, never repeat that ever again outside this room. Like they yeah. sort of give him the life advice of like, that is revealing how terrible of a person you are. You need to stop that right away. Yeah. Which again, gives you permission to laugh at this ludicrous, offensive, terribly, you know, terribly insensitive thing that he said or done usually to women. Yeah. And again, some of the psychological uh, literature on this has actually demonstrated that there are certain properties that signal safety. Um, and actually, a lot of them have to do with psychological distance. Yeah, let's talk about psychological so distance. So you were talking about the, uh, you treated it to Woody Allen, right? I never know who quotes belong to anymore because the internet is terrible at telling you who actually said something. Um, but the comedy is tragedy plus time. Um, so... Uh, Pete McGraw actually did a study to test this and he looked at both temporal distance and physical distance. So he did a study where he was looking at jokes about Hurricane Sandy, I want to say it was. It was one of the hurricanes that caused a fair amount of uh, physical damage and um, some threat to life. And what he found was is that at the time when Hurricane Sandy was happening, uh, that people physically far away from it thought that like tweet length jokes about Sandy were funny but people who were closer to it in distance did not think it's funny. And then as time went on, everybody thought it was funny. Or yeah. the, the, the people who yeah. had experienced it thought it yeah. was funny, right? It actually got too distant in both time and distance for the people who were not there to think it was funny anymore because they just weren't thinking about it anymore. So then here's my question for you. Is humor yeah. in and of itself uh, an example or a tool of psychological distance? Can you Can you make a joke about something sad or difficult or tragic that just happened? I think a hundred percent, but I think you have to be in. So I think that, uh, that making a joke can either inject some distance and, you know, or can accentuate distance that's already there. You can point out, Hey, we actually aren't affected by this. And you can do that with humor. So humor as a coping strategy, as an emotion regulation strategy has a long established, uh, history. The thing I love about the benign violation theory is that there's traction on both the safety and the violation piece, right? So some of the work that has been done on this has shown that if you don't have a strong enough violation, there's no humor, right? Like yeah. if I have a joke about like you being embarrassed because you walked into my office with your shoe untied, 
Like that's yeah. not funny at all because like who cares if who your cares? shoes untied? Yeah. Like it's not a big enough yeah. faux pas. Whereas you know a joke about you walking into a classroom to teach with toilet paper coming out <laughs> of your pant leg is a bigger faux pas. Yeah. Um, there's a there's an amazing show called The League, which had five or six or seven seasons, I think, on FX. Uh, and it has Nick Kroll in it and a bunch of funny people in it. And it's about a fantasy football league, sort of. And it, I jumped, I, I ran away from it a bunch of times because it was at times so funny. It's some of the funniest, funniest uh, TV I've ever, ever, ever watched because they are going whole hog with violating. And sometimes I felt like it wasn't benign enough, like it went yeah. too far. But it would be fun now to go back because I feel like I have a newfound respect for the risk that humor takes. And yeah. I think there's, I probably, um, seeing it a second time, I bet I would find even more of it Sure. Funny. But there's something admirable, Blair. I think that's what I've struggled with with humor is when I it gets quote-unquote offensive. Yeah. Or uh, I put it in quotes because I think that's subjective. It is. Um, but I also love that humor has the guts yeah. to go that far. And I think that it's funny. I, I, I think there's an increasing... I think in a in a world where people are becoming increasingly aware of not uh, trading on stereotypes, you know, to, about minoritized groups, uh, in a world where um, you know making jokes at the expense of people who have has historically had less power is is not as uh, acceptable as it used to be. Yeah. I think there's been a conversation in the comedy world about like how do we like any joke you come up with, there could be someone in the world who's offended by it. Yeah, um, you know. Does that mean you can never tell that joke? No. No. Right? And so I think that the benign violation is actually really helpful as a guide to, like, what humor is okay to tell and which one isn't. Yeah. Because you can ask yourself, like, what am I pointing out about this violation? Am I pointing out a violation of a rule that is actually dumb to begin with, right? That's yes. one way to use humor to point out that this violation shouldn't actually be be thought of as a violation. And that actually can, like, help social progress. Am I pointing um, out, uh, you know, like really thinking about um, who, who, what groups are at the expense of a joke? Um, and there's, you know, w I think within sort of more social ju justice context, there's this uh, term of punching up, right? Yeah. Which is, it is okay to poke fun. <clears throat> it is more okay to poke fun at people who are in positions of power than the other way around. Yeah. And so I think that a lot of jokes that have the potential to offend actually have the, you can use the exact same ingredients to turn them around and actually make fun of the other group at the other end of the power dynamic and make a really similar point and, and use some of the same, yeah. you know, know, uh, an unexpectedness and use some of the same violation to sort of point out. Well, does that tie to uh, a bunch of examples we have about abhorrent, really badly behaving characters such as, is her name Selena, you know, such as, as Julia Lewis-Dreyfus on Veep, such as a Seinfeld character, such as everyone in the league, such as Michael Scott in The Office, such as Neil Patrick Harris on How I Met Your Mother, where we recognize, I'm not, it, to me, in my brain it connects, I'm not yeah. sure if I can make it explicitly, where we know the, these people say and do horrible things, but we, we feel safe laughing with them and at them yeah. because... Um, because the actor is 100% committing to that character and almost laugh. We know the character is absurd. We've been given the tools to understand yeah. that we can't, we don't have to take this character seriously. Yeah. And therefore it's okay to laugh with at them. Yeah. I mean, I do think that, that television, movies, theater, 
there is an additional layer of safety always built in where yeah. you know that this is a, uh, that the suspension of disbelief adds psychological distance, yeah. right? And so I think that that creates a, a safe space where you, you feel free to laugh at some jokes that you wouldn't laugh at if they were just being told at a dinner party, you know, yeah. by someone who is taking themselves seriously. Um, but I do also think that sometimes there are sort of buffoony characters who yep. take the fall, right? Like that yep. you never, as a writer and as an actor, you understand that few people in the audience are going to authentically empathize with you, right. that you are a symbol of a type of person that is meant to be despised and had their eyes rolled at, but you function, you have a very important function, which is you're allowed to say things that other people might be thinking, but, yeah. uh, it would violate, yeah. you know, normal social norms for them to say. Yeah. And I think sometimes when people are working on a character, a character that's meant to be funny, you're, the actor is struggling with how much do I just play clown? Like how much do I just play yeah. the joke? And how much do I root it in given circumstances? How much am I the clown? Oh, always because the second, right? I don't know. I think so. That seems like always a better option. Mm. When I think about, and going back to Michael Bouchard's list and, and, you know, talking to people so much, it's all about committing to character and creating a really, really specific character. He says, in scenes, know what your character wants and play that intention with the utmost commitment. Real intention is the heart of comedy. Yeah. It's true. Well, and this gets into, you know, one of the things I wanted to actually talk about is I think that one source of humor is when um, the audience knows something that the character doesn't. Yeah. Right. So a lot of times there's in a lot of situational humor, there's something that all of the characters know except for one, which is funny. And sometimes there's something that the audience knows that none of the characters know yeah. on stage, which is funny. And it gets me to a little bit of like sort of diegetic and non-diegetic comedy, right? Like cool. there are times when your character is trying to be funny. Yeah. It seems to me that a lot of humor on stage is actually non-diegetic, right? The, 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 the characters don't understand that the situation they're in is yes. humorous. Yeah. They are missing some information. Yeah. They're not playing for laughs. Right. Um, and so in that case, then the advice to just play your objective super hard, like yeah. double down on your objective, double down on the given circumstances. Um, and when you're playing that kind of buffoony character, yeah. in some ways, those characters are written to poke fun at that that, that character's goals. Yeah. The fact that Neil Patrick's hair, Neil Patrick Harris's character on How I Met Your Mother, for the majority of the of the um, sitcom, not for all of it, was just this womanizer who just wanted to sleep with as many people as possible in as quick succession as, po succession as possible is gross. Yeah. You know what I mean? But he, everything he does makes apparent that that is his sole goal, like that he's yeah. uniquely focused on that goal. And so it, it, it almost sheds light on the absurdity of having that objective, the, more, the harder you play it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you lean in in our last episode, Rodney mentioned the phrase lean in a lot. And mm -hmm. I think with comedy, um, you, have to, you have to lean in to the character, to that. What I would call two-dimensionality of character, but I don't think that's exactly, I feel like that diminishes the power of the character, yeah. but almost the absurdity of the character. So by leaning yeah. into that um, with abandon, right? right, unabashedly, it creates the humor of that, of that Neil Patrick Harris, of Barney. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. Whereas there, I think it's probably a little bit different to layer a character who's trying to be funny mm -hmm. uh, because then you have to think, hmm. okay, how am I as the actor making this joke land versus like what is the very few characters 
are going to be understanding some of these principles of yeah. humor. You know what I mean? So there's like sort of two, there's a little bit of a, of a layering, yeah. but th- that's a lot less common. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm trying to prep Mercutio coming up, and Mercutio explicitly uses humor in multiple ways, both in positive and negative ways. And I just translate the use, I'm just trying to translate the moments where he's he she is using humor into just action verbs sure. so so she's um comforting cajoling yeah. romeo here she's connecting with romeo she's energizing she's um humoring him making helping him wanting him to cheer up yes and then with tybalt um lightning him, she, lightening him yeah. right he she also uses humor to humiliate she uses right. humor uh to show that she is superior to you she's smarter than you um so i think uh, and that gets into sort of the wit of the character. I think the wittier, the more yeah. sort of hyper-intelligent a character is, they're going to be negotiating humor in multiple ways. Totally. So just to circle back one more time, one of my favorite aspects of the benign violation theory of humor is that it really talks about humor as carving out boundaries, right? Like it, it really means that um, you you use humor to both say, this is what I consider a violation uh-huh. and this is the kind of thing I think makes it okay. And uh, so Pete McGraw, when he talks about it, he says he often uh, gives people advice um, to uh, tell one of their favorite jokes on a date, on a first date, because if you, if there's a joke that like is, has a, as a premise, a violation that the other person doesn't find to be a violation, that's a bad sign. Right. And if the way, if the twist on it that you find makes that violation benign again, is something that they actually did, doesn't find like resolve that that's also potentially problematic. So in some ways that it communicates a lot about your boundaries and what you think is okay and what makes things okay, uh, by doing that. Which I would like to think is flexible and changeable. Like I'd like can to be. think as I age, oh, yeah. I can appreciate oh, more yeah. forms of humor more authentically sure. than maybe I did when I was like younger and things had more sacredness and, and Interesting. reverence. Yeah. I think of myself as the reverse. I think as I think especially with darker humor, uh-huh. I think I didn't when I was younger, I didn't understand like the permanence of death and injury and like certain violent acts that I, I thought, uh-huh. I think I overvalued them for their humorous uh-huh. like contribution. And as I get older and as I am more aware that I only get one body in this world and as I have a kid and I'm yeah. so aware of her precious little squishy body, like I feel like more <laughs> violent type humor, I have a harder time finding funny. Yeah. So you're thinking on the, you're taking the violation more seriously and I'm taking the benign yeah. More seriously, and and this just drives home. I think what I absolutely love about humor is it's dealing with really, really serious shit. Yeah, right. And that's what's so brilliant about it is it's twi- it's helping you consider the seriousness, but with levity. Yeah. Um, gender. <laughs> so, hey, Anne, do you think women can be funny? Of course, women can be funny. There's a lot of I've really freaking funny women. I've been reading. Let's just list all the freaking funny women. Uh, There's tons she, of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to say one or two things about Julia Lewis-Dreyfus, um, Amy Schumer, all the women on SNL, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler. Sarah Silverman. Sarah Silverman, uh, the two women who do Broad City, uh, um, the women of Insecure, which uh, both of those started as, well, Insecure didn't start as a web series, but Issa Rae had a web series that then got turned into a show. So these are women who are building, um, producing their own work. And do you ever watch Nailed It? 
No, I mean I know of it. I love. It's a Netflix show where they have amateur bakers try to make like really complicated things, uh-huh. and uh, it's basically like the it's basically like the a, a half hour uh, Netflix show that. Um, capitalizes on the like Pinterest fail idea of like yeah, this is yeah, what it's yeah. supposed to look like yeah. this is what it actually looks like yeah. uh, but Nicole Byer is the host oh. of it and I find her so funny yeah. and delightful and she's just one of she's on that list there's an article in Time uh, I forget the date but of Julia Louis-Dreyfus and all these people saying really wonderful things about her and the fact that um, the character of Elaine in Seinfeld really opened doors for a lot of women, gave mm-hmm. them permission to be funny and to kind of pl- mm, either play by their own rules or like have a, have a seat at the, have a chair at the table of the male comedy. Mm-hmm. And I believe Julia Louis-Dreyfus had to fight a lot to get, to make Elaine a, a bigger character than she originally mm-hmm. was. But Amy Schumer has a, has a, mm, a skit a sketch called Last Fuckable Day where she is, she happens upon these three women, Julie Lewis-Dreyfus, I think it's also Tina Fey and Patricia Arquette, and Amy Schumer is just saying it was not all women were willing to do this sketch, which is them celebrating, they're having a picnic about their last fuckable day. It's poking fun at the fact that women, um, at a younger age than men, right, are determined to be no longer sexy, right? And they just sort of begin to play mom roles and not sexy roles and not objects of, you know, attraction. And so they were there, and I can't remember the specific jokes of it, but Amy Schumer's uh, quote was, it speaks to how brave and down to comment on this clear but unspoken thing Julia Louis-Dreyfus was, that, that it's comedy becomes this opportunity, and I think especially with women, and especially in this decade... to deep dive into shit that they've been negotiating, like really, really serious, violating stuff and finding ways to create comedy around it. Yeah, and there's something funny about defining the terms of making it benign that's empowering, you know? I think that there's you selecting sort of that aspect. And, you know, I think for um, for so much pointing out, like, pointing out violations in society that shouldn't be violations, right? Like there's this implicit, the reason that's funny is there's an implicit comparison with men, right? You don't ever have, like men don't, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I'm about to say something real ageist. I was about to guess what the what the age is Maybe where men become unfuckable. <laughs> <laughs> we could go there. Surely there is one. Uh, everyone has at least a small downside of the hill. But like, uh, you know, that, that's the that's the humor in that is the is yeah. the is the disparity. And instead of just railing about how unjust it is that there's this disparity, right. they they do it. You know, with the humor. Awesome. Lots of funny ladies. The power. Speaking of funny ladies. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We We are so excited to talk. We had our pick. Man, there's lots of funny women in Denver. Yeah, funny people, period. We are so lucky. Next up is our interview with Ms. Jessica Robley. Keep listening. We are so excited to welcome Jessica Robley to the podcast. Yay! <laughs> Jess is currently performing with the Colorado Shakespeare Festival in Twelfth Night and Romeo and Juliet. She studied acting with Anne-Marie Costa Davidson College and trained further at the Denver Center and the American Conservatory Theater. She's acted with many Colorado theater companies, the Arvada Center's Black Box, the Denver Center, Theater Aspen, No Holds Barred, Curious Theater, Square Product, Miner's Alley, 
Boulder Ensemble Theatre Company, and Sistrist. She has loved spending 12 seasons directing, acting, producing, and co-writing Buntport Theatre's theatre program for all ages. Her work with Buntport spanned 12 years and includes four original comedy series and six original touring productions. My favorite guest role is as Schmoxie the Fox, alongside Mitch Slevik as her brother Foxy the Fox, with the Denver Art Museum's Foxy and Schmoxie Art Detectives, which they've produced and performed for about seven years. Welcome, Jess. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm a real overlappy talker, so I'm trying to avoid that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no pressure, but we brought you here because you're funny. (laughs) (laughs) My eyes just got big. You can't see it. (laughs) So if you're not as funny as you possibly can be, you're out of here. That seems fair. Yeah. That seems very fair. Yeah. Yeah. Just ground rules. Just yeah. thought I'd start out with some really fair, <laughs> even, welcoming ground rules for everybody. I love Anna it. And I get to stay. You have to earn your keep with funny. Yes. Uh, I know you as an actor, a director, a writer, and a producer. When you're working with humor in any of those capacities, are you working technically or intuitively or both? Um, I would say when I think about how we worked when we were developing work together, it would be three of us in a room typically sometimes four people, and we would be talking through an outline for a show, usually with some source material, whether the source material was a song or a book suggested by the audience. And we would just be playing with the parts of the story that felt like they were rich, they were interesting, they were funny, they had something to offer us. And it did feel intuitive to me (sighs) where it just was like, that's funny. That's funny to have a giant parrot mascot be my boyfriend yeah. on the series for seven years. Yeah. You know, or eight years Let's actually. Name the series, Trunks, right? Yeah, it was yeah. Trunks the Life comic book. <laughs> and we would get book suggestions from the audience every time. And they would put in their book suggestions, kids and parents alike. We would perform our show for that week. And then at the end of the show we would draw a book suggestion and that would be the source material for our next episode. Mm. So you would come to uh, an episode that was a comic book episode based on Walk Two Moons by Kate DiCamillo. Uh-huh. And then at the end of the show, you would witness the drawing of the next source oh, material. Yeah. And then we would write it in about a week. And then we would rehearse it and put it together in about a week. And then we would perform it. And then we'd start over again. Yeah. So we had to work really pretty intuitively. And there were some books that made us cry. And all of us would take our turns with Kate DiCamillo's uh, The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane and cry in public spaces with it. And then we would return with what we thought was rich from it yeah. and put it together. And I think in that case, instead of it being a, a China bunny rabbit, as the mm-hmm. book suggested, it ended up that I was a, a lawn flamingo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And bringing a lawn flamingo to life, I think it's inherently funny. Yeah. Sure. So... That was kind of an intuitive moment for us. And I think that sometimes things also were just, we need to f- continue this plot line. We need to figure this out. We need to have this function. So it was kind of technical. And then we would rely on casting yeah. and brilliant people to come in and lift our script and find yeah. funny. And casting was a big part of it because we were working so quickly. So mm-hmm. you would choose people 
who you felt got it. Yeah. And could bring funny to the picture. I assume you learn from over the course of the seven or eight years, you probably figured out the tricks or the shorthand for sort of um, finding a successful product or a successful adaptation of the book faster than maybe in the first year. Can you remember yes. any of the, the tricks or the tools? Well, there were days that we really went over huge with the kids and there were days when we were really doing well with the parents and the audience. Yeah. And then there were days that were more balanced and some of that was hard to control on such a fast schedule. Um, but we knew that more physical work had to be happening to keep younger ones with us because a bunch of wordplay for too long, we would just say it's too talky. Mm. We have to be moving. We have to be more expressive physically, which is the same note I got for performing Olivia in Twelfth Night because of the space we're in. The Mary Ripon is huge yeah. space. So at the audition, when you're auditioning in an odd tape square... It was very unnerving. Yes. I don't know why that square was so unnerving. Yeah. But if you ask around, people were unnerved. <laughs> um, but you had to stay in the square. And then I got the note to make it uh, bigger, right? Bigger, more physical. And then in a classic audition recently for the Denver <laughs> Center, I performed similarly. The same audition monologue. And he said, I think you're illustrating it too much. Yeah. And I had to dial it down. But he gave me a chance to at least do that. Yeah. But it was funny because I was like, all right, a little too little, a little too much. Yeah, I'm fascinated by by that. So uh, one of my other questions was, you perform both for grown-ups and children yes. a lot. And I wonder how they take in a story and a humorous story in different ways. You've, you've talked about physical versus wordplay. Are there other ways? Well, I think recently, so an episode of Foxy and Schmoxy Art Detectives was based on a sculpture that a line drawing brought into a three-dimensional form and it's a bench of a man and a woman sitting together and we created a story about how we're looking for a squiggly line in the museum it, it's on the loose in the museum and the detectives need to find it because it's very dangerous and inappropriate <laughs> and we have been carrying that out for a few episodes, looking for a squiggly line. The idea was going to be that we were going to find a signature and talk about what signatures are for oh. students or kids, yeah. right? And then we arrived at this exhibition, Serious Play, which is all about ergonomic art and a specific kind of playful art. And we got there and we're like, none of the signatures are... It's just not working. We have to just abort. We have to change oh, what yeah. we're finding. So we found this line drawing, which is a long squiggly line. And we talked about line, which is very cool for an art museum. Because our goal is to get the kids to look closely and really to get anyone to look closely mm. and think more about it. Uh, so in the middle of that piece, it's about an eight or ten minute piece. We first explained what a signature is for the kids. That artists will sometimes sign their work to let everyone know they did it. And then there was a throwaway line that was, but it can be hard sometimes, especially if the pen on the little thing at Walgreens doesn't accept your, what you're <laughs> right, doing. Right. You know, like yeah. a little throwaway thing yeah. that ki adults will get, but kids won't. Mm -hmm. I think it's totally fair game. People have different yeah. opinions on this. Yeah. Watching the documentary, Will You Be My Neighbor? I felt, I think, great guilt. <laughs> <laughs> because he was so tuned in to what kids could understand sure. and so respectful of that. And I think we approached our series more with the Mel Brooks style uh -huh. of comedy, which is if it's funny to you, yeah, then that's the test. Do yeah. you find it funny? Right. Well, then really that's the litmus test that can really help you. Right, right. 
you can kind of formulaically approach something, but if you genuinely are laughing in the room, then probably it has something. Right, right. The project I, has legs. I support you know? your idea that you want to appeal because you're, you're doing shows where parents are bringing their children. I think the parents should get to enjoy it as, as much as the kiddos. One thing I love about uh, performing for kids, and I wonder if you feel the same way, is when they're into it, they're really into it. Like, they are enthusiastic. They're loud. They're shouting. Maybe it's too much sometimes, but I, to me, it feeds me as a performer. Do you have a similar... I have this memory of a feeling? gym out east at some elementary school, and we used to tour our shows in our hatchback vehicle, pack our set in there, and go early and perform whatever original show we were doing that morning. And I just thought, gosh, this is the best audience I'll ever perform for. Oh. It'll be the, the best because they're so excited. And it was in balance. It wasn't that they were, because sometimes you can have the kid audience where they're having fun with their friends and it's more about what they're experiencing with each other and the freedom of sitting on the floor somewhere is just too much. Yeah. Um, but in that context, I just felt like they were engaged with the show and responding. So their laughs were really real and they were really free. Yeah. And they also had the, the benefit of any large audience, which is a large audience gives you permission to laugh out loud. A small mm -hmm. audience makes you shy and people don't laugh as much. Yeah. They're more of like quietly thinking, that was funny. Yeah. yeah. That's totally true. Were you in Corduroy? I was. You were. I've seen you perform then. Uh, so I came with my daughter's class to come see Corduroy. And what's interesting is that we had taken her to see some Arvetta Center productions before. And even though they were the kid matinees, it's still like close to one-to-one -to -one adult to kid. Right? And so, and she was a little young. I was not, I'm not socialized in parent culture very well. And so... When I first brought her to the Arvana Center, we had done like weeks of work. I'm like, we're going to go to this place. We have to be quiet. If you absolutely need something, you have to whisper. And of course, we go in there. Are parents who have like screaming babies, like literally, like very. And I was like, oh, this is not a space. I don't. I didn't need to give her the adult socialization rules. Sure. But even still, at the Arvana Center, the reactions were pretty contained. Corduroy, there's like a twenty to one ratio of kids to adults. Because it's like during their school performance shows. Yeah. And I was, as a psychologist, as a parent, as an avid theater goer, I was completely unprepared for the contagion of laughter. And it was, I mean, as a performer, it's, if you put a negative spin on it, it's downright disruptive. It, it like every laugh becomes a really long, long thing. And I felt, to me, it felt like very few a very small duration of the laugh was about the thing that had caused it. And most of it was either laughing for laugh's sake or laughing at your friend laughing or laughing because you think that's the right thing to do. It had a, it had a false ring to it. Sure. I couldn't agree more. I yeah. mean, that's a great description of what was happening most of the shows. Yeah. I mean, by far. And as a performer, I think it, the main difficulty of it was vocal but then when I got to make eye contact with the kids and play with them and improvise with them a little bit in the front, there was one moment where I got to just look at them and talk with them. It was super fun. And just to see yeah. who those kids were yeah. really made a huge difference that they were so little yeah. and they were just delighted or kind of nervous sure. or kind of just fascinated and drawn in. And that made it really fun to play with where they were and... Yeah. You know, like mess with the hoods of their jackets or yeah. whatever. It was really fun and freeing for me. 
And it was extremely what you're talking about, where it was more about their experience yeah. than about the story. It was less connected. Yeah. And they also just don't, haven't had enough experience in a theater to know that if laughter swells, it usually dies down very quickly. So there was that rule, the rule of thumb of when to cut back in on your line is completely out the window because if you didn't make it really clear you were starting again, they would just have kept laughing for like 30 seconds every single time. So true, which (laughs) I think it's partially that like, it is what you're talking about. Look at me, I'm laughing and people tell you to be quiet, but I'm not being quiet and it's wonderful Yeah, and it's just great. And if you're trying to keep a pace of a story continuing, (laughs) it's complicated. You just have to learn how to do that gently you know move forward gently yes Yes, absolutely to rise above the laughter a little bit yeah if I pushed you to think technically about making something funny or creating humor as a writer or director or actor could you come up with you know whether it's timing or how to end a sentence a few things that you rely on over and over again to maybe land a moment a punchline or even just a yeah to land a moment I guess I think a great key to comedy is reversal and surprise Mm -hmm. every time. You surprise people with either your approach or with your vehemence or with your weirdness or with the word that you just said because that's not what people expected or saw coming. Um, Even, I think I'm seeing the name Carol Burnett on the whiteboard (laughs) behind you. (laughs) And if you're thinking about Tim Conway, who recently died, you know, some of those videos that people love so much are just that he's pushing further and he's surprising them and he's surprising them more and he's surprising them again. And if you watch Key and Peele, I feel like you see the same thing and that their formula is just to go further, Uh but they go further in such a surprising way that it doesn't become tired or worn like often Uh people complain about on Saturday Saturday Night Live. Uh Or even offensive. Right. Potentially. Well, I'm sure that there are some Key and Peele sketches that some people have trouble with. Although Jordan Peele, you know, says, if I'm not upsetting someone, I kind of feel like I'm not doing my job. Yeah. I heard him say that and thought, do I have guts like that? I don't think I do because Mm -hmm. frequently I'm working for family audiences. Sure. And I feel a different responsibility. So I'm somewhere caught between Jordan Peele and Mr. Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> Just a like, narrow swath of the, of, of, of the spectrum. Really. I'm feeling guilty about either end. Why am I not delivering for both of these people? <laughs> I actually have this greater appreciation now for material that really pushes boundaries. And perhaps the, the given there is that you will offend some people. And that's not the goal, but it's an inevitability when you're, when you're trying to find the best way to articulate this thing. I was thinking about it on the way over. I thought, what on earth am I going to say about comedy? Mm-hmm. But I think part of it is freedom. And I think that attaches to what you're saying, which is you're being quite free. Those kids laughing are being quite free. Mm. The person who is breaking the rules enough to, that they might offend is being quite free. And if you watch most comedians, they're playing with that all the time. And I think Hannah Gadsby is really interesting that way because she's playing with the definition of what this should be. And she's talking about how self-deprecation for her is not comedy anymore. But it used to be. So glad you brought her up. Can you talk Mm. about... I've only seen Nanette. Yes, Can you talk more about Hannah Gadsby? She's amazing. Well, I've only seen Nanette as well. And it was last summer and I was traveling and my friend and I were watching it in this apartment in Germany. And I just found myself so profoundly moved... And I think that that's another part of comedy that she brings in, which is heart, Mm. where I think there's something that's heart felt or exposed about comedy that is really gutsy. 
You yeah. know, you're going far. And someone I think recently described maybe my performance in Sin Street Social Club, not just my performance, all of our performances, but they were like, it, it's gutsy. Mm. And some t- other people told me another performance <laughs> recently. Two people told me it was brave. And I was like... <laughs> Okay, oh. what does that mean? <laughs> exactly. You're much, you're much peel enough, Rogers. <laughs> and I think it's exactly that. I was like, well, I may have gone too far. Um, but I also thought there were no choices but to go far. Yeah. Mm. That was the choice. And with that comes heart that you're, you're taking a plunge. And I think yeah. people feel that. And I think that's what they are there for. Well, when we were talking about... Uh, you know, a, a, many examples of comedic characters, whether it's uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character on Veep or um, Neil Patrick Harris on How I Met Your Mother, or um, there are so many examples, Michael Scott, Steve Carell on The Office, is there's an absurdity to the character's behavior, like, and uh, that that if you knew them as a regular human being, you might have issues, you might occasionally find them offensive, but that there's there's a necessity for that actor to to lean in, to commit 100% to the bigness, boldness, wacky, weird, absurdity of it. And then that somehow benigns or creates an okay for the audience that you can actually laugh at this person. I think there's also got to be that strain of realness so that you can believe it, because yeah. there's the big that we kind of hate, that people do mm-hmm. that is expected and we all know what that is and we see that coming and sometimes that game can really work and then there have to be moments that surprise within that trope that you're playing yeah. somehow to keep people with you i mean i couldn't i could watch alec baldwin play jack donaghy all day <gasps> i mean that yeah. is a terrific performance i think rock. he's so funny yeah. um He's a delight yeah. to watch. And it's a humongous role. Yeah. yeah. And Elaine Stritch as his mom, uh-huh. could you choose a better person to be that in his life? Yeah. I mean, that dynamic, the power shift is great. Yeah. He's so powerful, mm-hmm. then his mom comes in and just owns him. Right. And that's what's fun. It's the surprise and the power dynamic shifting that really helps. And a truthfulness. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of moms who control their children that way. <laughs> yes. Right? I have a, a question you know, when you talk about um, surprise and reversal, how is it different when you when you have a very short you know piece, or maybe when you um, are writing uh, less narrative sort of forms um, of comedy versus um, what I'm really curious about is how you can sometimes take advantage of character of like more stable traits of people to build in more opportunities for those reversals or, you know, or, or those sorts of things. Like there's a, a difference between a character that gets set up in the, sh- in the, you know, in an improv set or even, um, or even sometimes more of the joke based, like punchline based, like stand up comedians versus character based comedy where it's like, it's, this is only funny if you know me or if you know the character, then these actions suddenly become amazingly funny. I think that, there are a couple of examples that come to mind for me. And there's a one is I played Eleanor Dashwood in Sense and Sensibility mm-hmm. last year. And I think that the key to her comedy is watching her suffer and accommodate for the duration of the show, basically, in all the ways that she can. And the smallness of her responses get seen because there's a discipline 
to how you render that character for a long time. So if you do a small thing, an eyebrow raise or something, people might see that okay. or a glance. But if you have discipline throughout, then someone can appreciate that that's I see. an editorial thing that's happening. Because you've sort of shrunk the possibilities of her actions. Okay, The scale of it small. Like a Mr. Bean sort of approach, yeah, right? Yeah. It's more tiny so that you start to zoom in on it. Hmm. And then at the end when she is absolutely overwrought because she got what she wanted, which is never what happens to her. And she just ugly cries crazy in front of everyone. And I think that's a moment where, again, there's a truth to it. There's a surprise to it. For her, mainly, the audience often knows the story, but some of them don't. So it's a surprise to them, potentially. But it's definitely a surprise to them that she'll go that far suddenly. Yeah. And then um, that's interesting as a character bit of comedy because people do laugh when she ugly cries at the end of Mm. course because it's quite funny that she's that free suddenly and she can't control it and it's heartbreaking at the same time and it's beautiful in that way it's that double power but also when we did this show the comic book for eight seasons an interesting layer that comes into it is that people really know you so they've come back oh interesting every two weeks yeah to see you and they know your brand of comedy and they know who this is so that And I think back on this now and I'm like, why did that work? (laughs) But it did work that Trixie Trudfelt, a.k.a. the germ, had the superpower to make people sneeze at inopportune moments. Inspired by life. (laughs) My life, which I think it's funny when you just, you're driving, you should not sneeze right now. You need to see what you're doing. And you're just like, (laughs) and that's a real moment that you're like, that's funny. It's a very small thing, but we just blew it up to the superpower that she had that was actable. But ultimately, she was an overachiever. She was bossy. Um, She wanted to get things done. And when she cried, she would cry by just saying, meep, meep, meep. And that's how she cried. And people understood that and liked that about her. But outside of that, you'd be like... What? Right, right, right. Yes. You know? Yes. I played the In character. In a pitch room, if you're like, I've, so I've got a character who meeps when she cries, yeah. like that doesn't really, that's not yeah. a leading yeah. no. funny quality. It follows from all of the other things you've set up. And I it's understand. a surprising way to cry. It it's is. a weird way to cry. but And it's kind of funny to watch. Yeah. You know? And I think that's a character-based thing. Kind it, of. It, yeah. it, the... the dynamics of that word actually reminds me a little bit of a sneeze. It's like a lot of trying to hold it in and just a little bit of release. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And we just had permission to be really ridiculous, partially because of the schedule of the show. Sure. So we were gutsier because we're like, we're doing this one day, we're doing two shows in the afternoon, we're starting over. And it gives you a real freedom, which actually the further I am from doing that schedule, you can let that, I can feel that atrophy a little Mm -hmm. bit. So, Mm -hmm. And even, I think that happens with performing in general or Mm -hmm. writing, creating in general, that if you step away from it for too long, you can start to question your ability to do it. And I feel that quite easily. I heard Meryl Streep talk about that, that she's like, I have to be on a next project so that I can still have confidence I can do it. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing. But I thought, Meryl? Yeah. Is thinking that? Yeah. And I heard her say on uh, Actors Studio with James Lipton that he sort of said, how do you start every role? And she said something like, I don't know. Like each time I started, I don't know how I'm going to start this next one, which which is another, you know, Meryl humble moment. But let's take it at face value and say that there is this moment of... I don't know how to make this funnier. I don't know how to hook into this character. And you just, you use the tools you have and then you, it takes time and you, you figure it out. Yeah. And you move around in it and then you get ideas on your feet. Yeah. 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 
can, can you talk a little bit more about Olivia since we were talking about characters and, and can you talk a little bit about her, her humor, your approach to her, the mesh between you and her? I think what's great about Olivia that makes her comedy super fun for me is that it's accessible today in that it's timeless. It is timeless to think that you are terribly, terribly sad and know that you're terribly sad and you've experienced loss and then suddenly some light appears over there in the form of a human you cannot resist (laughs) and you are rendered not yourself. And I read an article about it recently that the science behind like when the doctor enters that you've told all about your rash over the phone and then the doctor enters and he's gorgeous <laughs> and you're incapacitated. Like your brain stops working the same way and you kind of can't talk and you're like, ah, ah, and that's what Olivia gets to do. Oh, why don't I do this? I don't do these kinds of studies. I just need to put out a casting call. Gorgeous doctor types. Please report to my psychology study. <laughs> I love it. And yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's really fun to just to let that fly that yeah. she is that over the top and I think that's what the intention is yeah yeah I think what other choice do you have you're suddenly falling in love you're suddenly enamored of someone and it gets to be as silly as you want in my opinion I'm noticing a theme Mm. do you think it's almost always funny when people lose control like yes I mean maybe not majorly like I have absolutely No. no control over anything for an hour but the Alec Baldwin example the sneezing, the there's just seems to be something about people who want to keep things in a, with their ducks in a row, and when something else renders them powerless, that's there's traction there. Absolutely, and I think like Alec Baldwin's example, that character is also interesting in that he's out of control Republican, <laughs> and that's funny, mm-hmm. right? That he's like trying to. <laughs> I can't, I can't quote it, but he's like trying to reverse the income overflow right, and he's using right. ridiculous <laughs> phrases that are over the top. And that's, that extremity is so fun for us yeah, because it just breaks the rules of how we actually do things or it acknowledges how stupid our rules are. Right. Yeah. And we need to acknowledge that. that sometimes. Definitely. I have a note here that I want to ask you about how humor is used to subvert or to be subversive. And here you are bringing that up are there is there another example where you can think about how someone has used humor to you know um stick it to the man well this may not be appropriate but we'll just see i was at observatory park yesterday with my dog and my husband and we got out of the car and i'm managing the dog and i don't hear something and my husband's drew is like oh and this is about some dad playing soccer with their kids. And I'm like, it looks pretty great. What's the problem? <laughs> yeah. And one of the kids has said, water break. And his dad said, water breaks are for girls. <gasps> Did you beat them up? And I said, I wish I'd heard that. Because I would have said something. And then I spoke very loudly. Like, oh, I just need my water, honey. Where's my water? <laughs> Do they hear you? I don't know, but it I was very so. loud. Good. And I was not very yeah. far. Yeah. But I was just, yeah. I guess I felt so angry yeah. that they were talking to those two young boys yeah. like that about girls and that women were sitting there holding babies in laps. Yeah. And I guess that's okay for them. And I find that very upsetting because I think on many levels, I don't know. I started out as an elementary school teacher and I taught theater K through eight and most of the staff there were women teaching the young children. Then I became a person who worked a lot in children's theater. And I think that age of education does not get as much respect as higher education, whether it's 
anyone's paid enough, I think, is no one's paid enough in any of it. <laughs> However, there's a loftiness, there's a respect for higher education that I don't know that people have for kindergarten teachers um, or third grade teachers or whatever. And then in children's theater, I think it's a little bit, it's thought less than the theater for adults because it's for children. And then you just keep encountering these little, like even pediatricians, things that have to do with children mm-hmm. are th- by the medical mm-hmm. community are looked down upon like, oh, you're going to go into peds? Yeah. Ugh. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> why do we first of all not value children? And yeah. second of all, I don't know the stats, but I'm curious how many women are pediatricians. Yeah, right. I'd be interested to find out because women are often attached to children. Right. And then that, that yeah. lack of uh, respect is yeah. un- disconcerting to me. Yeah, yeah. So. It, it seems that's you are, not funny. <laughs> you are much well. That's the other. That's the wonderful, not underbelly, but that's the beautiful contrast to humor. Is I feel like humor is negotiating a lot of serious stuff and just finding a way to <sighs> levitate it, levitate it, lighten it, so that we can actually stomach it or talk about it. And how? I mean, what a gift that you can think quickly enough to how to make that funny, right? To make it absurd. I can't imagine that. That unless someone was seriously unhinged, that one of the the the, the men who was a coach would be like, "Get out!" You know, if you walked over and you said, "Let me tell you a little bit about equality and men and women," like they'd be like, "Get out of here!" Right? Whereas your joke points out the absurdity of what they said of, "Oh, only only half the uh, only half the planet needs water." Like we're at altitude, folks. <laughs> Everybody needs a water break all the time. And I just yeah. thought someone reasonable in those children's lives has been shouting "water break," and right. they heard good information. <laughs> right. <laughs> Water breaks are important, guys. And I sometimes, you know, we um, we were just talking right before we got started, like, why is it sometimes so hard to talk about certain issues, like hot button issues? Why is it hard to talk about bias? And um, part of it for me is I don't feel quick enough to respond to things on the fly in an appropriate way. And I feel like if I were funnier, I could. I, I felt guilty, though, that I said it in that way because I thought, is that productive in our current climate? Could I have just shouted, girls are awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Would it have been right. better? Because I don't know if they even heard me. And if they did, they probably just thought it was snide and biting. Right. But it was definitely right. what I felt. I mean, so it's expressive. Again, maybe the question is what, whether you were saying it for the kids or the parents. Like the kids, more kids might have gotten the message if you had shouted, Girls are awesome. Um, but I feel like to point out someone's, uh, the contradiction in someone's statements. Anne was talking about the um, last fuckable day. Yeah. Just rewatched it yesterday. Fantastic, right? The- and what's delightful is not only are they celebrating the last fuckable day, but they also say, "Well, what about men? They must have it." And the women are like, mm, "No, <laughs> I don't think they have. You know, they have it." And they just—it's hilarious, and it's negotiating many aspects of that. It's just a delightful. I'll have episode. to watch it. I've not seen it. Yeah, with one of our shows that was about the advent of bicycles and. That's all happening and growing more popular, and women are getting the vote in Colorado. And this is a a play we wrote for kids to tour about Colorado history. It's all based on newspaper stories from the 1890s about. And that story about bicycles has some of that humor that's for kids where she's explaining words to the doctor because he keeps repeating them to her. Like, he's shocked by that. That she uh-huh. just rode a century, and a century is a hundred mile bike ride. Yeah. But he's like a century, mm. as in that's inappropriate. Women yeah. shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. They won't be able to reproduce. And it wasn't just men who thought that; it was women too. Some women too. Um, it'll hurt their lady parts, and they won't be able to make babies. And so he says, "How many miles did you bike today?" 
And she says, I, century, doctor. It's like, a century. She's like, yeah, it's a hundred mile bike ride. It's like, I know what a century is. <laughs> but we repeat that joke where she's explaining what words mean yeah, to him. And explaining how the bloomers have pockets. It's so practical. And he's getting really upset. Yeah. And he's representing that. And then there's also a woman who represents a point of view in the story, too, that she's also scandalized by bicycles and women yeah. being uncorseted for this for this task and riding around with freedom from their older generations of women who are watching them and their mm, virtue. Yeah. Who didn't know how to ride a bicycle. And so it's a great opportunity for that comedic scene, yeah. which I think there's just comedy to it inherently when I was doing the research about bicycles that people thought you wouldn't be able to have a baby if you rode a bicycle. Right. Yeah. That people were that worried about pants. So you know yeah. right away that yeah. that's funny. Yes. You know? Yeah. So that, that's just like, okay, got it. We could make a story out of this and it would be accessible to kids. It would be funny. Mm-hmm. It has yeah. that. And it also has a great message, which is this person is powerful. Her name is Dora Reinhardt. Mm-hmm. She's from this area. And she was an incredible bicyclist. Mm-hmm. I mean, she rode on old-timey bicycles just for great distances. It's astonishing nice. how strong she was. Given the Me Too movement, is there humor now that feels off limits? And similarly, is there an opportunity for women to find humor and talk about situations that they maybe previously talked about less? I think there is more room for women to talk about that. I think there's also, I feel like when I watch things, I feel like there's maybe a little bit more of, I feel like, Amy Schumer, in her recent stand-up special, she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, I should know the title. Uh, I felt almost like she felt obligated to wade into those waters. Uh And and you could feel a change in the audience. And she remarks on it in the Mm -hmm. special that people are looking back at her like, Mm -hmm. when she's talking about basically being an activist during the time of Judge Kavanaugh's hearings. And... She's making great jokes around it where she's just like, when am I going to eat? Because I'm pregnant and all I need is my food. And if they arrest me, where am I going to put the food? And if I get arrested, I'm putting the food in my mouth as fast as I can. And it's very funny. But it's also, she says a few things in there that are really strong. Uh They're strongly stated. And what she senses in the room um, is a shift where people kind of start to go, huh. And she, I think she remarks on the men in the room. I think, of course... I've encountered friction around this a lot, actually, just in Facebook posts, but generalizations are not that helpful. You know, there were plenty of men in the room who were down for that and agree. At the beginning of the episode, Kateri said one thing she loves about humor is you could describe it as both expansive and exact. If you agree, can you... Can you elaborate on those words? I just think those are really beautiful words to put together. And I agree. Um, I just wanted to hear what you thought about those words, if you think they describe humor. Expansive or exact. And and both at the same time. That's right. Coexisting. Um, Well, I think to me those words mean expansive means freedom. Expansive means, I think, shaking the lens for people to go, I'm going to look at this differently. And it's in a way that I can manage to do that and feel safe Mm. to do it. So that feels expansive to me. Um, And I think, I really believe that some comedy shows along the way have helped us make social progress um, because we've just opened up a little bit through humor, helping us be able to handle it and enjoy ourselves 
and enjoy yeah. people who are different from us and not be threatened. Um, as far as exact, I think that a joke will hit with a specific delivery. And Steve Martin writes in his book, Born Standing Up, about how exact his comedy was mm. and how it was right down to the the tone and the phrasing. And I think it's true that when I sometimes play with things, and I do like to, if I, <laughs> especially if there's a line that's kind of problematic or somehow not quite going, but occasionally going, uh, it's fun to keep trying different things with it to see what goes and what goes big and what goes small and what goes for one guy in the corner. Um, hmm. And if you change a word or if you don't change your tone quite enough, how much payoff is there, for example, to changing your voice to be more exasperated and pressed, which is not good for your voice, but it's good for the joke. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And that's something I've debated recently because I went through vocal issues. Uh-huh. So it's like, is it worth it to me? Tonight it is. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go because this audience is responding and I yeah. want to go that far and yeah. just make it really crazy. <laughs> and it does play better that way than it. Then it plays if I just say, it's crazy. The difference is huge. The difference is very different, especially uh, the difference is very different. (laughs) That's deep. Just put that on loop in this piece. (laughs) Um, Jessica, Jess, fresh and and pure. pure. (laughs) (laughs) That is a funny story, though. I was in this acting on camera class, and I was paranoid because appearance has always been a really big challenge for me. I never felt like I was built for it because I struggled with all sorts of things (laughs) through a terrible adolescence of awkwardness. And I arrived in this class in college and one guy told me, the teacher told me that I had a chip on my shoulder. And I was like, oh, okay, that's terrible. I wonder what that means. What am I doing that has a chip on my shoulder? He also told me that I had a come hither something happening in my camera look. Then later I took a class And we were talking about how we needed to know our types for television work. And this is funny because now I know the absurdity of this, but I was like, well, maybe I could help sell shampoo. (laughs) Because I thought, well, I like the color of my hair all right. Now I know it's like fluffy and like cotton candy, which is not helpful. Um, And they were all like, "Mm, no, the whole class, like uniformly. And then I got told that I could play the lifeguard or someone selling feminine products. (laughs) (laughs) And those moments are priceless. (laughs) They're so funny to me. Just like a bad audition is just always funny. It's just always funny. Are you laughing about a bad audition in the moment of the bad audition or five or 20 or two hours later? (laughs) I mean, I think you're feeling both <laughs> at once you're feeling the pain and the comedy at once of it you're like oh he just told me i was overacting i'm gonna act some more <laughs> and then i was like all right i'm gonna <laughs> outside here i stepped in a hole oh, no. and i laughed at myself oh. i was like jesus i'm just trying to walk somewhere and it was still funny that I just kind of fell in a hole. I, I think both li- exist. I love lifeguard and feminine products at the same time. I don't see those as overlapping types at Exactly. All. That's what's so funny. Really? About. And there's, they're both weird types. This sounds like Jack McFarlane feedback. Like, this is not real acting feedback. They're just both fresh and pure? They are. <laughs> I think it was... 
I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm pale that I'm. <laughs> so why would you put, they put you in the you sun? This is a dermatologist. You should be a dermatologist. Lifeguard, okay, indoor lifeguard slash feminine project. Very different intersection. <laughs> There's nothing really sexy about an indoor lifeguard. <laughs> hey, you are looking at an indoor lifeguard. Oh shit! I've really all done four it. Four summers of my high school experience. Listen, if I wanted to be a lifeguard, I would most definitely want to be an indoor lifeguard. <laughs> <laughs> because I would die and cook. But I I don't know. Some of these things, they're just so painful. They're funny. Obviously, yeah. there are things that are not. But as far as that line is concerned, I think Hannah Gatsby's playing with it. Yeah, I love and it. And I think Cameron Esposito is playing with it mm. in really smart ways. And her stand-up addresses some interesting things around can you do rape jokes? And I think she actually has a, co- a special called rape jokes or something like that. Um, and I thought, gosh, this is really smart. She's really delving into this question. Yeah. Which is a great place to make art. Yeah. It is. And I think that that one of the tricks to if you're not if something's around the edge of you're not sure if you're allowed to joke about it, I feel like inviting the audience into the question of, hey, are we allowed to joke about this thing right now is a really smart thing to do. To be like, I'm not just making the statement like this is cool to joke about. I'm being like, hey everybody, it's it is this okay? How about now? Is it okay too too soon? Too late. Oh, not or not soon enough. Okay, got it. You know, like there's a way to have the funny be in the conversation around whether it's funny. It's a delicate art. You could also see that tanking. But I think that that's a way with um, inviting people to laugh with you and saying we're, we're all aware of, of, of the stickiness around this rather than, than just declaring it's okay to say this. And it's super, funny. super smart to do it that way. And people scaffold to it in really intelligent ways. Dave Chappelle is brilliant at scaffolding to it. I mean, he's pretty unapologetic in terms of addressing things, but the way he scaffolds his act, it's so well-built story-wise to set up a long piece of his act, sets up a later longer piece. It's just, that's just craft. Yeah. You know, that's just beautiful craft of how do you scaffold to the moment where you're going to point that out. And I think Amy Schumer does it really well to scaffold to the moment later in her act where she's dealing with this activist moment. She doesn't open with that. Right. Right. You know? And then she comments on the response she gets. Yeah. And yeah. during the outtakes, she comments on the people who look completely overwhelmed, like this is not what they were bargained for. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, you two. This is just the beginning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the point of the scaffolding is, is to make the audience feel safe or at least to draw them in. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably somewhat of that. Feel where the audience is. Uh-huh. You can feel them a little bit, where they are, how they're responding, just in the energy of the room then I think there's helping them warm up to the idea of laughing. That's a real thing. Yeah. People don't do that right away. It's too bad, but they don't. (laughs) And then I think it is to maybe make them feel safe, but also just let them know you. I think we all deal better with jokes from people that we know better. Yeah. We know who you are more. The context makes more sense. Mm. Therefore, if you make that kind of challenging joke, we know where it comes from. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And for sharing. Thank you so yeah. much. I hope it works. It will. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. We want to thank Jonathan Howard, our sound engineer, for always doing amazing work. We and couldn't do this without you. And, and webmaster and composer. amazing person. <laughs> and we also want to thank DU for providing us with two grants. Without them, we could not make this podcast. The first one is the Camp Creative Arts Materials Fund and the FRF, the Faculty Research Fund. 
Awesome. And if you like what you're hearing, um, feel free to go into iTunes, which is where most of you are listening and, uh, give us a quick rating or, uh, subscribe to us because Apple keeps track of those things. And so you'll help other people find us if you do those two things. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hi, thank you so much for listening. I want to apologize to Julia Louis-Dreyfus for mispronouncing her name throughout the episode. Now I know. Thanks.